This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Danielle Plutka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? I always laugh when you ask me that. I know, because I'm so, <laughs> I'm so bad at being dramatic. Oh, you're very dramatic, Danny. Shut up. <laughs> well, what the hell is going on is there's been a dramatic shift in Ukraine. The Ukrainians have launched a counteroffensive against the Russians in eastern Ukraine. and They've taken back, at the time of this recording, over 3,000 kilometers, square kilometers of territory. The Russians have been surprised by this, this offensive. They can't seem to handle it. And you know, we've, we're now sort of in the stage where the, the Russians, first they fail to take Kiev. Then they had a little bit of success in eastern and southern Ukraine and taking territory. And now the counteroffensive has launched and the Ukrainians are taking back territory. And there's there's reason to hope that this offensive uh, could could be successful and that over over a period of time that they will be able to get this. is this, they're, they're not just going to stop Russia from conquering their country. They're going to be able to drive the Russians out of every inch of of Ukrainian territory, including including Crimea, including which they, Crimea. God bless them. We should help them do it and uh, and help them have victory. So, to paraphrase Winston Churchill, who very famously said, "Well, it's not the end, but it is the end of the beginning." I'm really hopeful that what we've seen on the ground in Ukraine is actually the beginning of the end for Russia. I think a lot is going to depend on our resolve in continuing to ship weapons, in continuing to up the quality and the reach of the weapons that we're sending to finally see an end to the slow roll that the Biden administration has been doing. Less of a slow roll now than six months ago, but still, you know, I saw that um, six members of Congress, six senators, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, ranking member of the Armed Services Committee, so three Democrats, three Republicans, all senior members of the Senate, wrote to the Biden administration and said, what the F are you doing? Hurry up, you know, get this moving more quickly. I think there needs to be much more pressure because we want to see the Ukrainians. We don't want to see them stave them off. We want to see them crush the Russians. It's exactly right. I mean, this is this has been the problem with this war from the very beginning, which is, you know, first we didn't want to arm them before the invasion because that would be provocative. That's always the thing. It's going to be too provocative to Russia. Then we wouldn't give them the uh, the MiG fighters because that would be too provocative. So we'd only give them Soviet era weapons from the Eastern European uh, arsenals of Eastern European countries who joined NATO. And then we started to give it, we gave them javelins, but we wouldn't give them longer range rockets. Then we've given them longer range rockets, but we won't give them the longest range rockets. I'm putting this in very, you know, colloquial terms, but it's just like every step of the way, it's, it's they're, like they're, they're doing the right thing. And there's no question that Biden's actions have saved Ukraine and he deserves credit for it. But why, why in God's name does he drag it out? Because every day that we wait to give them this stuff, every day that we delay, every decision that we, we don't want to give them this long, these longer range rockets today because, well, they could reach Russia. And so and that, that would and Russians. that would be provoked. Because, we, of course, Russia, Russia, which is absolutely kicking ass in 
Ukraine is going to turn around and bite off more than it can chew exactly. by attacking the United States. Exactly. What? It's so I ridiculous. Mean, it, so just it, it do actually it. is ridiculous. Just do it. Just yes. do it. I mean, you're like, it's like, you know, trying to have, trying to be half pregnant. It's like you're, we're in, we're, we're helping the Ukrainians. <laughs> we're giving, about that, Mark. We'll give it, we're giving them the weapons. Just give them whatever they need and have them, you know, and, and, let's and have, let them let's, win. And let them and win let them and them sooner win. rather than later. Because in Isium, the city, they just found mass graves with hundreds of bodies, entire families. This isn't just an academic, you know, argument or a geostrategic argument over, you know, is this weapon system going to be provocative or that? Well, while people in the, are sitting in the National Security Council in the, in the sit room having arguments about that, entire families are being slaughtered and put in mass graves in this Russian territory. Every time we delay, every one of these stupid delays and these decisions ends up costing human lives in, in Ukraine for no good reason, because the result is going to be the same. We have already committed to help Ukraine defeat Russia. Right. So let's so do it do faster. It. I agree. And, you know, one of the things that I think, you know, we is is buried underneath the hyper-partisan atmosphere and the, and the desperate attempts by the press to uh, to put a Republican-Democrat spin on everything is the fact that there really is massive American support uh, for winning the war in Ukraine for the Ukrainian people. You know, we don't want troops to go over there because we don't need American troops over there. They are fighting extraordinarily. They have momentum. They've got strategic initiative. They are actually fighting a smart war. And are we helping them? Yes, I think we are. And I think that's great. The American people want us to win. You know, Mark and you and I always talk about the ideal for American national security, which is that we help people help themselves. Not that we send American troops here and there and there and here in fake peacekeeping operations or, God forbid, to fight wars, but that we help people help themselves. Here are the Ukrainians who are absolutely at the apex of a country that is standing up and helping itself. And we have Americans behind them 100%, and yet we still can't kind of get our act together. You know, the Biden administration hasn't requested anything beyond the first quarter of 2023 for Ukraine. Wow. I mean, look, two things. One, to your point about this being Republicans and Democrats united, ironically, Zelensky has done what Biden promised in his inaugural address. <laughs> he has put his whole soul into uniting uh, Republicans and Democrats and bringing us together. Uh, our country is united behind Ukraine, uh, though there are small pockets of skepticism, which I want to talk to you about in a minute. But, but the other thing is that Biden, he's done it kicking and screaming. He's done it slowly. He's done it unintentionally. But he's employing the Reagan doctrine. Right. When Ronald Reagan came into office, just after our withdrawal from Vietnam, there was no appetite for sending American troops all around the world to push back on Soviet advances around the world. And so he came up with a brilliant strategy, which was that we would support freedom fighters around the world who were willing to fight our enemies for us. And all they needed were weapons and training and diplomatic support and ammo and intelligence. And and they would do the fighting for uh, for us. And so that's exactly what we're doing here in Ukraine. This is the Reagan doctrine. Exactly. This is a, this is a fundamentally conservative foreign policy decision, which is a we are help. The Ukrainians are going out and they are destroying the Russian military. They, they've lost half of their military capability so far. In and this tens war. And of thousands of troops. And they're going to lose more and they're going to lose all of it if they if they stick with this. Exactly. And, and so why would we not want to give the Ukrainians American weapons without having to send a single soldier over there to risk their lives uh, in this fight? And let them destroy the Russian military so that it can't threaten 
Europe and it can't threaten our NATO allies and it can't provoke us into a future war over another in somewhere else in Europe. This is just completely in U.S. national interest right. to get this done and to do it quickly. OK, so let's talk about those pockets, the pockets of hostility to this, because there are there are and they're not they're not irrelevant. Right. We had yeah. we had 57 members of the House vote against the May Ukraine package. Some of them explained it away by saying that there was garbage in the bill and that they didn't weren't able to look at it. I agree. Uh, there was garbage in the bill. Nonetheless, there's garbage in every bill. <laughs> and so they're, they're finding their principles all of a sudden on this issue, I thought was a little suspect. But there are also people who uh, oppose this straight out. People like Rand Paul, others. What do you think? So there's two different things. I think Americans generally are reluctant internationalists. And so if you give them a good argument and explain to them why American interests are at stake, most of them are, are willing to support something like this. And so I think the Biden administration has sort of let public support sap because they actually haven't been actively going out, which is taking something that is actually one of their only major foreign policy successes and touting it and getting fully behind it. But also he's been going out and saying, well, you know, it's the Putin price hike. You know, he's been talking about like inflation. blaming, And so what the Americans are hearing is I'm paying more at the I'm paying, you know, more, more the, at the, the grocery tank. store than than I ha, than Americans have since 1979. My gas is more expensive than it's ever been. Worst inflation in four decades. And Biden says it's Putin's fault and it's because of this war in Ukraine. So he's actually actively undermining <laughs> public support for possibly the best thing he's done as president and his most important national security initiative. So there's that. And then there's a separate thing, which is the sort of these pockets on the right of sort of pro-Putin, pro-Orban. And I want to do a whole podcast on this at some point. I want to bring Matt Continenti back to talk about, he had a fantastic piece in the Wall Street Journal about sort of the Orban wing of the of the Republican Party. I don't think this is this represents a majority of the Republican Party or even the conservative movement. But, you know, we just had CPAC in Budapest. We had they they had a CPAC meeting in Dallas and they brought Orban, Viktor Orban, the leader of Hungary, who is a pro Putin. You know, uh, that I have no I have no problem with like right wing conservative pro family you know the policies and you know at that wait 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 so so you're okay with right wing pro family policy yeah i oh, am oh okay yeah i, just, I am newsflash folks always have been <laughs> um but you know but why does it have to be a pro putin guy it's like if you wanted to have cpac in europe with a right wing government why not cpac warsaw what about got, London? Or, but, I mean, but, but truly, Warsaw. You know, the Poles have been standing up against the Ukrainians. They hate the. They give the. They give the the conservatives everything they want in terms of pro-family and pro- and that, that good old anti-Semitism oh, we've missed stop it. so much. Oh, yeah, stop it, Danny. go Warsaw. Yeah. The only difference there is that they hate the Russians and they hate Putin and they've been heroes when it comes to Ukraine. But that's not popular amongst this cor- this segment of the right. Right. So and what's so, so what's wait a minute. So okay. You and I agree, not necessarily about Polish politics, but then again, who gives a shit? Um, <laughs> but about but about about American politics here. What is wrong with these guys? This is sort of the Trump Seb Gorka yucky bottom feeders, uh, fascist nostalgics. What is it? Conservative nationalism. What is that? Well, here's the so again, we're going off on a tangent here because but I want to talk, just, talk just, about Ukraine. But but take me, one bite on I'll it. I'll take one bite on it. So I'm pro-nationalism, actually. I think conservative nationalism is a good thing. American nationalism... Do you mean patriotism? No, well, no, I mean nationalism. Okay. And here, and here's the difference. European nationalism and American nationalism are two different things. 
because European nationalism is blood and soil nationalism. Right. American nationalism is based because their countries are all based on blood and soil and race, right? Our country is the only country in human history that was ever established on the basis of an idea, on a creed, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. And so anyone who subscribes to that creed can be included in the nationalism. It's a nationalism of an idea. And so the problem is, is there are some people on the right who are trying to basically bring European-style blood and soil nationalism and graft it onto the American American conservative well movement. And I, it's like bringing in a foreign body into our conservative ecosystem. I am 100% for American conservative, American-style nationalism that is based on the, the ideas of the Declaration of Independence and because that is an inclusive nationalism right, that not anybody Bismarck, can be a yeah. part of it. And right. so I, well so said. that's why I'm so frustrated with that segment of the right. But we're going to have a whole different so podcast that was a, on bo- that. a bonus rant <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but we actually have that's a guest. That's what people come here for, the bonus rants. <laughs> <laughs> but we have an actual guest and somebody who was very popular uh, on our podcast last time we had him. So we were just thrilled that, that he was willing to join us again. Ambassador Kurt Volker, uh, former ambassador to NATO, former special rep representative for Ukraine. He's now a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and most exciting, and he'll tell us a little bit about this in the interview, he is the founding partner of the American University in Kiev. Here's our interview. Kurt, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be with you. Well, so it seems like we're in the third stage of the Ukrainian struggle right now. So, you know, the first stage came with the Russian invasion and the failed effort mm-hmm. to take Kiev, and then came the Russian pulling back from Kiev and going after eastern and, and southern Ukraine. And now we're in the third stage, which is the Ukrainian counteroffensive to take back this captured territory. Tell us, is that is that roughly right, and what what how's the yeah. offensive going? Yeah, that that is roughly right. Uh, so I think you can look at it in those phases. I would also describe it in three different phases, though. Is one of them where Russia assumed that this is going to be a walkover, and they just tried to you know take over the whole country, and they didn't plan, they didn't prepare, they didn't have rations, they they, they got stuck on the roads. Um, the second one where they realized this, they pulled back, they got out of northern Ukraine and, and away from Kiev, and then tried to launch you know, kind of an artillery offensive and a in a, in a war of attrition in the east, and that didn't go well either. And now the third phase is that they're just sitting there and exhausted, and they don't have the capability to advance anymore. <laughs> that's that's always my favorite phase of the enemy's part of the war. Kurt, it's, yeah. so it's, yeah. great, it's great to have you back. I, I, so tell us why you think the tide has turned. Many things. And, and let's first, right up front, let's give credit to the Biden administration for shipping Ukraine $15 billion worth of American weapons. Ukraine would not be standing without that. So we have to give credit for that. I wish it was faster. I wish we didn't have limits on some of the things we're providing them. I wish we could have you know, done so much more, so more quickly. But we did help through our equipment save Ukraine. Uh, I think there's several factors here, both on the, the Russian side and the Ukrainian side. On the Russian side, poor training, poor equipment, poor leadership, poor command and control, lack of motivation in the forces, low morale. Um, it, it's, a, it's a really decrepit force. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, you have incredibly high motivation and determination. These people are fighting for their families, their homes, their land. Um, 
they are determined. Uh, they're not going to give up. Um, and we have helped them over years by giving them some equipment. Remember the Javelins, we, we started in 2017, I think. And getting the Ukrainians more like a modern military, more decentralized, more professional. And that made a big difference in the early days. And then as we've given them more and more and better equipment, uh, they're able to integrate it into their forces and use it well. So they're going after the Russian supply lines, bridges, roads, railroads, ammunition depots, uh, fuel supplies, and they're making it very difficult for the Russians to sustain their forces. And this gives the Ukrainians then the opportunity uh, to opportunistically go forward and take some of this territory back. Uh, they they did this in northeastern Ukraine recently, east of Kharkiv. They took a lot of territory. And uh, that was after launching an offensive in the south, or Al-Kherson. Some people say, oh, that was a feint. You know, they're, they're doing this operation in, in the south in order to draw the forces away. I think it was more opportunistic from the Ukrainian point of view. They, they do have to take Kherson. They do have to push back from Odessa and Nikolaev and, and go towards Crimea. But when the Russians moved their forces to defend there, the Ukrainians saw that, well, Kharkiv is wide open. Why not take, take eastern Ukraine from there as well, too? And I think we're going to see more and more of this. The Ukrainians having the upper hand now in terms of uh, available personnel, equipment, motivation, logistics, command and control. I think that they are going to just keep pushing the Russians back. So, I mean, tell us, do you think that Ukraine can succeed in their goal of driving Russia out of all of the territory that they've occupied? Answer that question for 2022, but also tell us whether you think that's a relevant question for 2014 as well. Can they take back all the territory, including Crimea? Um, so first off, uh, I think, yes, they can take back all the territory, including Crimea and Donbass. And the reason for that is I think the Russian military is on you know, the verge of, of collapsing in terms of uh, offensive capability and even defensive capability. Uh, with Crimea, if the Ukrainians are able to cut it off, uh, the Kerch Strait Bridge, the ground line of communication from Rostov through Donbass and Kherson, uh, those forces there are going to start feeling a little bit isolated. And the Ukrainians have been able to strike the naval base at Sebastopol. That's the big one, the one that really matters. Uh, I just read today uh, the British uh, Defense Ministry said they believe that the Russians have redeployed their submarine fleet away from Sebastopol back to Novorossiysk because they're afraid for its security there. Uh, so I think that the Ukrainians can do that. Now, how does this look? Uh, it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be easy, and it's going to require consistency in support from the U.S. and other allies. And I would expect that before the winter, you're going to see the Ukrainians take Kherson, the city, and that part of Kherson province that is west of the Dnieper River as it comes down into the Black Sea. And they'll probably take some more of Donbass before the winter sets in. I'd expect the fighting to kind of stabilize a little bit during the winter months. And that's going to be really hard for the Russians. The Ukrainians, again, are home. They're going to have food, fuel, logistics, supplies, etc. And the Russians are deployed in the field. And they're going to have a hard time with all of that. And the Ukrainians will keep using the HIMARS and keep using artillery to take out Russian logistical support. Tell people so what HIMARS are. I think are. that when uh, HIMARS are these um, multiple uh, launch rocket systems, 
that can fire artillery with precision strikes, and we've given them artillery shells that can fly as far as 80 kilometers and hit what they're meant to hit. And this is, and, and they come in, in pods, so you can fire several missiles at once. Um, this has been a game changer in terms of knocking out the Russian logistics and therefore exposing their forces in the field. Um, what we have not done is given the Ukrainians longer range shells, yeah. which we have. Uh, they could fly as far as 150 kilometers or even 300 kilometers in a different type one. It's called the ATACOMS. And we're not giving them that for reasons that don't make any sense. Um, we are telling the Ukrainians, don't attack Russian territory. So you can fight the Russians in your territory, but don't fire into Russia. And the Ukrainians are largely respecting that because they need the equipment from us. But this has Putin. nothing to do with the range of the system. The, the Kharkiv is, is 40 kilometers from the Russian border. They can hit Russia today if they want to. And they choose not to. And meanwhile, there are Russian forces in Ukrainian territory, for instance, at Sebastopol and Crimea, or that Kerch Strait Bridge, that are legitimate targets that they can't hit because they're further than 80 kilometers from where the Ukrainian forces are. Uh, so that's the kind of thing I wish we would just get over and give them the equipment that they need. And I think if we did, it would help shorten the war and, and help you know, convince the Russians that they're going to have to pull back. So you started out by saying, let's give credit where credit is due to the Biden administration. But yeah. they've been dragged kicking and screaming into every one of the right decisions that they've made. They didn't arm them before the invasion. Then they started giving them just old Soviet you know, weaponry. And now they're giving them the high Mars, but they're not giving them the more advanced, longer range. It's like, at some point, shouldn't we just take the gloves off and start fighting? I mean, not us Absolutely. personally, our, uh, but shouldn't we let the Ukrainians take the gloves off and right. start fighting? It's like, why are we exactly. why are we dragging this out? Why why is it? And every time the, the the justification is, well, we don't want to provoke Russia. It would be provocative if we gave them those weapons. Yeah. And then and then they get end up doing it, but they do it like you know months later exactly. when thousands of people have died. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, the reasons, you know, they're publicly stated. Uh, we want to avoid World War III. We don't want to provoke Russia. We don't want this conflict to be a U.S.-Russia conflict or a NATO-Russia conflict. Uh, we got to keep the spotlight on the Russian. But as you said, we keep saying no. And I remember back in February and March, you know, arguing vociferously about this. Um, we wouldn't give them stingers. Uh, we wouldn't give them the fighter aircraft that they were asking for. We wouldn't give them armor. We wouldn't give them uh, heavy artillery. Uh, we, we've broken all of those thresholds now, and we ha we just fail to understand that Russia doesn't want to escalate against us or against NATO. They're having a hard time fighting Ukraine. Uh, the last thing they want is to drag more countries into this. Um, same thing about use of nuclear or chemical weapons. Uh, yes, it's a risk. We have to be very conscious of this. It is very dangerous, very, you know, you know it would be awful if they did it. But at the same time, I think the Russian military knows that any strategic use of nuclear weapons uh, would obliterate Russia because we wouldn't stand for it. And any tactical use of nuclear weapons would definitely draw Western forces in against those Russian forces. And that would eliminate the Russian military capability. So they don't want that either. And I think Putin probably knows that his military may not follow the order. If he does order a, new, a tactical nuclear strike, and he doesn't want to risk that uh, that uh, break with the military and the embarrassment that would cause. So I think we have a, a lot more room to actually help the Ukrainians 
And remember, they're defending their country. Russia attacked and is in their territory. should be no hesitation about helping Ukrainians fight back here. And one thing I've heard, another excuse is, oh, well, we, we don't want to deplete our own supplies. Well, what are our supplies for <laughs> other than protecting against Russia? And Ukraine is, in, is engaging in a masterful job of threat reduction right now. Well, not just that, but I mean, not just what are our weapons for, but exactly. we should be running around screaming with our hair on fire for the fact that we have managed to seriously deplete our weapons, helping Ukraine fight Russia, for heaven's sakes. We made fun of the Brits and the French for their pathetic showing in fighting Muammar Gaddafi. And yet yeah. we Pumping apparently because they ran out of ammunition and bombs. That's yeah. right. And yeah. we and we don't have the resources. So the you know, I'm, I'm surprised that DOD isn't cowering in shame at our lack of readiness. Exactly. Yeah. You're reminding me of another point that I think is really important because we're starting to get some questions in Congress. How much is this costing us and where's this money going? And, you know, why are we doing this? Isn't this really expensive? People need to understand that we're not giving money to Ukraine. We are giving money to the Pentagon, and the Pentagon is buying American weapons, and those are going to Ukraine, and we can track them and follow them so we know where they are. And you can see on the, on the battlefield, Ukrainians are using them. So this is actually giving a big boost to U.S. defense industry, which frankly needed it because we have not been buying enough oh, that's a great and point. putting enough into defense industry. So for members of Congress who are worried about the money, they no. This is actually helping American defense industry. And it's activating our supply lines, which was supply exactly. chain, which, will, which, which was dormant for absurdly long. Okay, so yeah. I want to talk to you a little bit about Putin, because, yes, the Ukrainians have really turned this around. Yes, they are amazing. Yes, they are kicking ass. And yes, the Russians suck, which shouldn't surprise us. That's the technical term. That right? is the technical military term, yes. <laughs> Um, I, I like I like it when you can we cut use to the chase. We terms here at AI. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> why Russia sucks by Danny Pletka. But let's step back a second and acknowledge the fact that Putin has not called a full mobilization. We've talked about this with you before. We've talked mm -hmm. about it with Fred Kagan and Jack Keane as well. Um, he has reasons for not doing that. But he is fighting with one hand tied behind his back. And... I wonder whether – I have two questions for you on this. The first is I wonder whether you think he may at any point change his mind on that matter. And the second is uh, we've heard a lot of talk, especially since the SCO meeting, about both the Indians and the Chinese kind of really you know, telling yeah. the Russians that – Tell people what the SCO meeting is. Shanghai Cooperation the Shanghai Organization. Cooperation Organization, exactly. So the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting, which really went, I would say, rather poorly for, for Putin in the sense that he was both berated by Modi and at, had to admit up front that, that Xi Jinping had questions, quote unquote, for him about the conduct of the war. Okay, so let's start with the Shanghai one. I think this is quite embarrassing for Putin. Uh, people were speculating that, oh, China's going to help out Russia. Or are they going to help supply arms, things like that? What did he get from China? He gets kind of a cold shower and says, I'm, you know, she tells him, I'm concerned about what you're doing. Um, this is very consistent with what we talked about the last time we talked. The Chinese have their own interests. They're, they're, Chinese interests are not the same as Russian interests. And Russia is um, – putting China in a worse position. China wants to look at its desire to reincorporate Taiwan into the whole of China as um, 
justified and something that'll happen seamlessly and it's inevitable. And Putin, meanwhile, he's attacking a sovereign state member of the UN, one that they had recognized as an independent state previously. Uh, they are doing a terrible job militarily. They're killing Ukrainians. They're killing the targets. So, you know, they're destroying what they're actually trying to gain. Um, this just, and they're committing all kinds of war crimes along the way. This is not an image that China wants to be associated with. They, they want their image to be very different. So Putin gets a warning from Xi. He also gets a bit of a cold shower from Modi, which I don't think he expected because Modi is basically saying, well, you know, sell me cheap energy and I'll buy it. Uh, but here, he, I think it's gotten to a point, especially all the war, the war crimes and the atrocities, that even from these, these people that otherwise were either passively supportive or neutral, they're telling him that this is not good. So that's, um, that's the one side. Remind me of your first question again. First question was the hand tied behind the back. Is Putin, you know, does Putin yeah. have options Yeah, will he do a general mobilization? So when it comes to a general mobilization, I don't think Putin's going to do that for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is he's tried to shield the Russian population of Russia from any sacrifices, any impact because of the war. And he's opened recruitment centers now in Moscow and St. Petersburg, something he had avoided before. But it's still voluntary. He, he's trying to avoid any kind of direct impact like that. Uh, the regions uh, have provided the bulk of the forces, and they're beginning to feel like this has not gone well, that they surprised, they supplied the, the personnel. They've got lots of people killed. They don't want to do more. And if Putin were to try to go for a general mobilization, he might find that the regions start you know, pulling back or rebelling against that. He doesn't want to cause that kind of friction. Then he has a different problem, which is literally they've destroyed half of their combat capability right now, and they can't produce new equipment and new ammunition easily. And so they get people in who have zero training or experience so they can do a general mobilization. What do they do with them? They, they, they don't have the warfighting capability, and they don't have the equipment and the kit to give these people. So how would they actually use these people if there was a general mobilization? So I, I just don't think that that's very likely to happen. You said that they've, they've destroyed half their military capability. I mean, I understand that they're turning to North Korea for artillery now. Uh, it's amazing. They're, they're getting drones from Iran, and they're going for you know just conventional military goods from North Korea. That, that tells you something. <laughs> yeah, but— so tell us tell us what it tells us. I mean, are the uh... well, that they can't do it themselves anymore. That the sanctions have actually had an impact on their uh, ability to produce the kit that they need for their forces. Uh, one one of the big things that they lack is semiconductors and microchips. And as a result of that, they can't produce precision guided munitions right now, which means they're firing dumb bombs. Which means that you know they're deadly for a civilian population that might get hit. But it doesn't have a military impact because they can't hit the military forces of India. It seems like there's been a almost a flip in terms of the military capability because when this started, they were using their precision weapons, which they've run out of. And the yep. Ukrainians were using old Soviet-era artillery. And now yep. the Russians are the ones using the dumb bombs, and we're giving them advanced Western uh, That's exactly artillery. right. If that's the case, then, then it seems that it's unwinnable for the Russians. I think so. I, I don't see Russia gaining anything more than they've already. They're on. They're they're losing. They're they are being pushed back now, and I don't see that changing. So, 
how at risk is Putin? Uh, you know, one of the really, really nice potential outcomes of this mm-hmm. is that, you know, he who is really, you know, moving towards a Soviet-style, uh, you know, nostalgic Russian imperial uh, past for himself, uh, with with himself at the top. This has really put a crimp in his plans. It, yeah. do, do you think he's at risk? Well, I do, um, because he's put himself at risk. He has defined himself as a builder of Russian lands, a new Peter the Great. He's committed to this military operation. He denies Ukraine's existence as a people and as a national identity. And he is he, he has pushed Russia into this and maintained it. And so he he has no way out other than success. And there won't be success. So, so he's on the plank now. That, that's, that's one big problem for him because he can't stop. What happens inside Russia, though, there's no mechanism for you know, people removing him or election or you know, put somebody else in charge. There's no mechanism for that at all. It's a dictatorship. So uh, it reminds me of, of what I learned as an intelligence analyst, my very first professional job, is that the most likely scenario of things when you analyze it is the continuation of present trends. Everything will continue as it is. And that is true every single day up until the day that it's wrong. <laughs> and the hard thing is figuring out what causes the change. And uh, we, we can't say, you know, what, what's going to snap in Russia that will undermine Putin or, or have the country implode or, or who, you know, who knows what it would be. But something will snap someday. Is he more at risk from the quagmire, or is he more at risk if he ends up having being forced to withdraw? So you look back to the, uh, you know, the Soviet I, you know, I the Soviets that, withdrew from Afghanistan in '88, and by '91 there was no more Soviet Union, and there wasn't a mechanism right. there either. They, they had a coup. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know? And and just what you said there too. Remember that was three years. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows? Um, I think that the the quagmire or the slow death uh, is bad because. The sanctions will stay in place. The economy will be a mess. As long as he's in power, uh, we're going to be going after him for war crimes, and we're not going to be easing up on the Russian economy. And we will be continuing to support Ukraine. So he, he he's going to be in bad shape if that's the case. If it's a quick defeat where the Russian military collapses and then has to pull back, that's also bad uh, because then I think there's going to be among the hardcore nationalists, the elite, military, etc., a sense that uh, he drove them over the cliff. Uh, I don't think he has a good way out. So let's talk for a minute about Europe. Um, I, I was I was doing somebody else's podcast, actually, this morning, and they asked me whether I thought that there was some risk that the United States and, and Democrats and Republicans and the public would get irritated with the fact that the Europeans are really not bearing this burden. You know, Olaf Scholz has been in the in the crosshairs because uh, the German chancellor, because he promised tanks to the Ukrainians and isn't delivering them. He, he said, this is a sea change, and yeah, it hasn't been a sea change in Germany. As winter comes, it's going to get harder and harder for the Europeans because they've made themselves so dependent on Russian energy supplies. How do you see Europe's role evolving over the coming months, especially into winter? Well, that's a good question. Um, the Europeans so far have been willing to stare down Putin and say, okay, we will pay higher prices for energy. We will find alternative sources of supply. 
we will provide some assistance to the Ukrainians and we will keep these sanctions in place and maybe increase them. So they've been doing it. It is not, um, it's not dramatic. It's not with resolve. It's not, uh, no one's using the words, you know, like we have to help Ukraine defeat Russia, which are the words that you would like to hear people use. The Germans in particular have scarcely delivered any serious weaponry to Ukraine. But all that being said, um, they they have been willing to, to to suck it up, pay the higher energy prices, and uh, stand up against Putin here. I think that that will continue through the winter, even as there might be some shortages, and even as there will be cooler temperatures and higher prices and so forth. I think that that will continue, uh, and it will continue because of the atrocities. Uh, they we we keep getting the reports of the you know the torture chambers and the bodies and the bodies children and everything the Russians have done. And I think the Europeans get that there's no, there's no going back to business with Putin. Um, And that I think is is important. What what comes after this then, I think this is maybe where this question goes, is Europe has not yet internalized what it means uh, to have a genocidal uh, sort of fascist and imperialist Russia right there in Europe, willing to attack and kill. Um, that's something that, you know, it, it's the same ideology and, and behavior that gave us World War II, and we can't allow it to turn into World War III, so we have to be stopped. And if that's the case, Europe has to really be thinking hard about uh, making sure that Putin is defeated and making sure that everybody in Europe who's a democracy and a market economy and wants to be a secure European country is part of a secure solution. So everybody has to be in NATO. Everybody has to be in the European Union. That's the only way we're actually going to have peace in Europe in the future. So quick follow-up, because, um, and and this actually is going to lead to my exit after I allow Mark to get a word in edgewise. (laughs) Mark's (laughs) shaking his head. Um, Our marital podcast relationship here. The little woman never lets me talk. I think you're right that the Europeans clearly haven't internalized it. And I would say in certain European countries, you're still seeing sort of moral equivalence between the Russians and the Ukrainians because, you know, Mm -hmm. war is bad and it's no willingness to assign blame. But what I worry about when I look at European resolve is not so much that while the human rights violations are continuing and the atrocities are continuing, they're going to go south it's when we start figuring out an exit strategy for Putin. It's when we start talking about the need for, for peace and reconciliation. Uh, the Europeans, you know, don't give much of a rat's ass that there are a million Uyghurs in uh, yeah. concentration yeah. camps and it hasn't, uh, hasn't broken their stride on China much. I worry yeah. that, that, in fact, their resolve on the sanctions against this uh, genocidal, imperialist, fascist dictator on their doorstep is actually going to be weak. Yeah, it's it's something that obviously we should worry about. It's it's the constant refrain of, uh, okay, but when do we get back to normal? We have to live with Russia. Russia's our neighbor. Uh, Sanctions aren't working. So it it always comes back. But I think that we'll be able to to keep it together, uh, at least through this winter and next year. So 
you know, Danny's talking about the crumbling of uh, support, uh, potential crumbling of support in Europe. Polls show here in the United States that most Americans support Ukraine. I mean, I still walking around my neighborhood, see Ukrainian flags flying from people's homes. But there are pockets of skepticism in this country on both Mm -hmm. the left and the right about, you know, why is this in our interest? Why are we spending every time there's a news report saying another, you know, tens of billions of dollars going to Ukraine and all the rest of it. Talk talk to Americans who might be skeptical about this. Why is this in America's interest for this offensive to succeed and for Ukraine to succeed? Right. Well, the United States faces two countries that are serious threats in the world, including with nuclear weapons, and that's Russia and China. And Russia is being, uh, first of all, they, they engage in a war of aggression here, which is threatening a democratic country, a country that shares our values, and if they are successful in Ukraine, it will embolden Putin to do it again and again, keep going, just as we saw back in the in the 30s with Hitler in World War II. Same thing. But in addition to that, by helping Ukraine, the Ukrainians are defeating that Russian threat. They, are, as I said, they're they're engaging in a masterful job of threat reduction for us. Uh, so this is actually very worthwhile. We're not losing soldiers. We're not deploying people there. We're just giving them our equipment. In doing that, we're supporting our own defense industry, and the Ukrainians are defeating the threat. Uh, so this is a bargain from a U.S. point of view. And I think uh, you, you hear people call for accountability and where's the money going and so forth. I'm all for accountability. There should be transparency from the Pentagon and the administration. What are they doing? I, I think it is largely transparent already. I don't think there's anything um, that's really not exposed. But remember... We're not giving Ukrainians money. <laughs> We're giving the Pentagon money. We're giving it to defense industry, and they are producing stuff, and we're giving the stuff to Ukrainians. So it's actually helping rebuild our own defense industry and our supply chain. So exit question from me, and uh, I agree with you. I think the long-term outcome here is mostly good news, but I really worry about the inconstancy of America. I've been bad-mouthing our European friends, but there are plenty of troubles close to home as well. Yeah. And one of the things that worries me most is, okay, let's even set aside the unwillingness of the Biden administration to like make a long-term serious commitment by asking for money for Ukraine beyond the first quarter of 2023, which is in and of itself very problematic and no one has been talking about. But the real thing I worry about is when we actually have to start providing money not to the Pentagon and to the Ukrainians. And we start talking again about uh, endemic yeah. corruption. We start talking yeah. about the dysfunction of the of the government. The kind of things Europeans said to me in 2014. Really? You want yeah. us to stand up with those crooks? No mm-hmm. way. Yeah. That is a bigger worry. Uh, when it does come to uh, economic reconstruction and recovery, the Ukrainians have basically said, give us the money and we'll rebuild. And nobody is going to do that. <laughs> nobody. Um, so it comes then down to, well, how does Ukraine get its economy to recover? And it is essential, of course. You know, you, If you're going to have tax revenue, you got to have an economy to tax. And if you're going to have your own military forces sustainable, you got to have a tax revenue. So uh, this, this is essential, but there is no plan for how to do this at the moment. Uh, I have a suggestion on this. I wrote it up for SEPA uh, on the website, SEPA.org. But basically, we should create uh, a coordination body. Uh, Every G7 country or or entity should appoint a senior coordinator for 
economic recovery of Ukraine. They should meet together with the Ukrainians, listen to the Ukrainian priorities, discuss what the strategy should be to get the private sector functioning, not just government aid, but how do you get the private sector back in? And then start chipping away at what that will take with the public funds available. For instance, private sector is going to tell you, we need removal of unexploded ordnance and mines. Uh, so, okay, let's do a program for demining to make sure that agricultural land and gas fields and oil fields are accessible. Um, the, the port of Odessa, same thing. Others are going to tell you, look, we can't get insurance to come in and, and invest in our business again. So this is something governments can do, is to uh, provide uh, war risk insurance or to uh, subsidize secondary insurance so the insurance companies uh, will be willing to lower the rates that they provide for the private sector to get back in. Um, there will be infrastructure projects. There will be big spending things that need to be done. But these should be done by the actors providing the funds through their own national needs that they are comfortable with. So you have the World Bank, you have the EU, you have the U.S. through DFC or AID. We feel comfortable using those sort of mechanisms. We're not going to transfer them either to the Ukrainians or to some big international thing. So it's going to have to be coordinated, but it's going to have to be executed severally around uh, an agreed strategy. Exit question for me. So one of the lessons of this whole fiasco is that dictators miscalculate, <laughs> that we we tend to think of uh, them as rational actors and make grand strategy based on an assumption that your enemy is the irrational actor, but no rational actor would have done what Putin is doing and exactly. has gotten himself into right now. So a, from a rational actor analysis, this should uh, the success of Ukraine should restore deterrence in other parts of the world, right? Here's a guy who just bit off more than he could chew and got his ass kicked. And uh, boy, do I want to make that mistake. But will it? Will it restore deterrence, for example, in the Taiwan Strait? How does Xi Jinping look at this from his perspective and his goals of retaking Taiwan? I think Xi Jinping uh, sees it just as you said, that uh, Russia had more military capability and should have been able to win this war pretty easily, and they didn't. Um, so that's one thing, and that his military wasn't as good as he thought it was. Maybe there's a little bit of that that's causing Xi to question what's going on in China. And that the West did step up to help Ukraine, which uh, I don't think was a given. Um, certainly the way we behaved at the beginning of the war didn't look like we were going to do that. The way we got out of Afghanistan convinced everybody that we didn't have the will to use force. So I think that that was a surprise, but maybe a lesson, was that ah, the West actually did and can come in and help out. But I think the, the lesson I would take, you're, you're absolutely right to raise this rational actor question, because it is irrational from our perspective what Putin has done. Uh, he has damaged Russia severely by his actions, and he's still doing it. He's continuing to do it. And what that should tell us is doesn't matter if your enemy is rational or not. Act as though they have the capability and the will to use whatever they have and plan for it. Because if, if you're prepared, it doesn't matter if you think it's irrational for Putin to use a nuclear weapon, for instance. Make sure we have a nuclear deterrent regardless. Uh, so be prepared and have the capabilities because you can't count on somebody acting rationally or having your sense of what is rational. Amen to that. Kurt, as usual, you've been simply marvelous. Tell us about the American University in Kiev. 
This is an initiative that uh, I started with others about three years ago. There are four of us who are founding partners. And it is a partnership with Arizona State University and Quintana Education. And we have established the American University in Kiev. Uh, we're licensed for graduate and undergraduate degree programs. Uh, we did a lot of prep work, a, a lot of uh, picking the facility, a lot of uh, designing the curriculum and the programs. We opened up the students on September 1st. So right in the middle of the war, we're saying, okay, we're starting a university. It is online education for this semester only uh, because of the war, but we are determined to move to in-person education, uh, or at least hybrid in January, and in-person fully as soon as we can. And I'm really convinced that uh, this is going to be a new and permanent fixture in the U.S.-Ukraine relationship. Uh, the young people in Ukraine are extraordinary. They want access to quality Western education. This brings it to them rather than them having to go study abroad. Uh, and it's investing in this younger generation that will fix Ukraine. Uh, I have no doubt. Uh, there's so much commitment and integrity. You, know, you raise the issue of the old, bad, corrupt Ukraine and so forth. The new generation in Ukraine, uh, especially with, with great training and great education, they'll be fixing that. Well, Fantastic. Well, Ukraine is lucky to have people like you in their corner, Kurt. Thank you so much for yeah, joining us. That's, yeah, they're a great country and they deserve it. Thanks. So I thought what Kurt was saying at the end was really important is that we have to not be losers. <laughs> we have to not be losers. That's a good standard for everything we do as a country. Uh, but we have to be aware that our adversaries are not necessarily rational actors and that just as Putin miscalculated in Ukraine, just like Saddam Hussein miscalculated, just like Taliban and al-Qaeda miscalculated when they attacked us on 9-11 and provoked a response that they weren't expecting. Xi Jinping could miscalculate just as badly. And this is why I think it's so, it's so important. And again, this is another tangent, but it's so important. On 60 Minutes this weekend, Joe Biden said for the fourth time, for the fourth time, he was asked if if China invaded Taiwan, would American military forces go, go into action and defend Taiwan? And he said yes. And for the fourth time, the unelected aides who had got zero electoral votes have undermined him again and said he didn't have any change Even in policy. Even fewer than Donald like Trump. After, after, four, after four times, we probably I think we can safely say that today— U.S. policy is that we would defend Taiwan, I whether sure whether the so. unelected think or not. We need to be that clear because the reason why Putin has invaded Ukraine and not Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, though he wants all of them too, is because of the Article 5 guarantee in the NATO charter, which he knows that that would be an attack on them, would be an attack on the United States, and we would respond militarily. And we need to make we need to get rid of the strategic ambiguity in the Taiwan Strait and make absolutely clear that we would defend Taiwan. Well, I agree. I mean, look, I'm not a big fan of strategic ambiguity. I think you want your enemies insofar as you can urge them to be to make rational calculations. In other words, if I do this, you do not want them asking themselves, hmm, what will the United States do? You want them saying to themselves, no, if I make this choice, here's what the United States will do. And it's funny, our entire... You need to treat them as slow learners. <laughs> well, that's right? true. I mean, tru truly, it's slow learner doctrine. But right? <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, but, you know, just talking in a nerdly fashion about the structure of foreign policy. As you usually do. You know me. I'm always nerdly. Um, 
didn't I just <laughs> didn't I just describe the Russian military in the beginning of this podcast as sucking? Yes. Also nerdly. So one of the things that we've talked about is how important NATO has been, not just recently, but uh, as a pillar of the transatlantic alliance since World War II. And it was built, of course, on the alliance of the allies during World War II. Alliances are hugely, hugely important. What are they? An alliance is a declaratory policy. If this happens to you, I will do this for you, right? And I don't understand all of those lovers of vagueness, especially those who profess to be fans of NATO, right? During the Trump administration, President Trump, <laughs> let me bring back my favorite poli word, sucked on NATO, said a no, lot of... he didn't. Hang on. Yes, he did. No, he said he a lot didn't. of bad things. Wrong. Yes, he did. Come Wrong. on. He put... Wrong. Yes, he did, Mark. He, got he, na- he, got he may na- have gotten it. He may have gotten better. He may have gotten them to do the right thing. But he also said, what am I going to do? Be called on to, to, to fight a war for Montenegro? Come on. He, he said it. Okay. Okay. Right. And I'm sorry. You know, he, yes. Yeah, we've talked about this. Okay. Set that aside for a second. But all of those people who got on their high horse and were like, oh, my God, they clutched their pearls. NATO, NATO, NATO are the same people who are like, Oh, well, you know, we don't really want to make Putin nervous or Xi Jinping nervous. We really need the strategic ambiguity so that we don't box ourselves in. And it's like, I'm sorry, I thought you liked the NATO charter because it boxed us in, but you don't like other policies like that because why, you bunch of fucking hypocrites? <laughs> in embracing our explicit rating, Danny. <laughs> um, so you're 100% correct, uh, except on the Trump stuff. Um, but, but, the other thing is, is what I don't understand about these people who are for strategic ambiguity is it makes war more likely. You don't want to, if your goal is to be a non-interventionist and not fight wars, then the best way to do it is to, is peace through strength is to say very clearly, if you do X, we will go and kick your ass. Amen. And then people don't do X. If you don't say you're going to kick their ass, then they might do X and then you're going to have to kick their ass. So better to have to avoid the ass kicking by having a clear by policy. On X. And, and damn it. Damn it. And the other thing. Strategery from the what the hell is going on <laughs> Oh, my God. You know that's the, Bush, that's the Bush uh, Center's podcast? It's called Strategery. Strategery, yeah. yeah. I know. Okay, um, that's so awesome. highly recommended. But right. But the other thing is. Danny's giving me the, uh, the trying to give me the hook, but I've got one more thing to say. (laughs) That, quite frankly, if if you know there was during the during the Roseanne Roseanne Dana, okay, say it. (laughs) (laughs) That during the two thousands, we would say that NATO needs to go out of area or go out of business. Um, I think that's as true as it's ever been today, and I think we need to expect we need to stop thinking of NATO as a North Atlantic alliance. And start thinking of it as a global alliance of free countries, and that I think if you want if you want to deter China, not only should we have to get rid of strategic ambiguity, let's next step should be bring Australia into NATO, Go ne- Australia. like that. Let's bring Japan into NATO and bring the alliance to the Pacific, and not only have not strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, but if China wants to attack any of our allies in that region, they're going to have the entire NATO alliance uh, at war with them as well. I think that's the kind of commitments we should be we should be making. Change NATO, that, and improve it. And on that powerful note, I want to assure our listeners we're not actually drunk, even though we <laughs> say, even though, even though we sound it, it is actually ten to eleven in the morning, and Mark and I don't start before that noon. Mean that I'm not drunk. <laughs> That's true. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Bloody Marys. 
Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And don't forget to send us your suggestions, your criticisms, your ideas. Subscribe to our podcast, review it, subscribe to our Substack, do all those good things, and we'll see you next week. And we got through an entire podcast without Danny saying crikey. Uh, crikey. <laughs> <laughs> Take Bye. care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.